big thanks to Capital One for sponsoring this month of Revision Path. The Capital One digital team is a diverse group of people who work together to build great products for the enterprise and to disrupt how people interact with their money, their bank, and their financial lives. Curious about what they're working on and how they're growing? Check them out at CapitalOneCareers.com or at their Medium community at Medium.com forward slash Capital One Design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to tell you about an upcoming event that is presented by Glitch Media. Forums at Civic Hall, in partnership with Facebook and Glitch, are hosting the State of the Internet 2019 on February 28th at Civic Hall in New York City. Come out and hear Glitch CEO Anil Dash and Matt Mitchell of Crypto Harlem and Tactical Tech address some of the challenges facing the health of the internet and offer some frameworks on how companies, tech workers, users, and governments can help make the internet a better place. Doors open at 5.30 p.m. and tickets are on sale now at eventbrite.com. Check the show notes for a link to purchase tickets. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. There's three things that sets designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the globe. Facebook Design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Did you know that MailChimp sends 6 billion emails a week and helps millions of customers in over 175 countries? With millions of customers also comes millions of insights, so you can get powerful data on your campaigns and ads and get personalized advice for your next marketing move. So whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. For the month of February, Revision Path will be talking to black women who are a part of the Capital One Digital Team. The Capital One Digital Team is a diverse group of people who work together to build great products for the enterprise and to disrupt how people interact with their money, their bank, and their financial lives. This week, we're talking to Alana Washington, Strategy Director on the Data Experience Design Team at Capital One Bank. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi. I'm Alana Washington, and I am a strategy lead on the data experience design team at Capital One. Data experience design is this awesome intersection of physical experience design and data visualization, and I'm currently building out a data journalism practice here at Capital One. 
data journalism at a bank. That's yes. <laughs> that's interesting. Talk about that a little bit. It's a tall order. So one of the really amazing things about Capital One and one of the things that keeps me there, that drew me there, literally from interview number one, is that there's an incredible values core to the bank. We have a mission to change banking for good. And I didn't really believe that everybody bought into this value when I was first interviewing, but two years in, it's an incredible rubric that people use day to day. Like, are we doing something that right now is changing banking for good? If it's no, then I've seen pivot people pivot and start to kind of reimagine or reorient their work. And so when I think about something like data journalism, our data visualization team kind of got into this rhythm of seeing two types of projects possible. So we saw the kind of classic tools and analytics realm, helping our machine learning engineers kind of evaluate the efficacy of their models by our data displays. And then we also saw this realm start to emerge where there are these powerful and awesome examples of the way that our technologists are implementing algorithms, et cetera, to help our consumers avoid or check fraud that might be approaching them. We've done some really cool other stuff in kind of the anti-money laundering space and spaces that I'm not even sure I'm allowed to talk about, but I hope to. And that's where the data journalism practice comes in, is that there are these stories of wonderful, hum- kind of the intersection of humanity and technology that I'm hoping to unearth and externalize a bit to kind of show that we are working to change banking for good and to show the wonderful people that are here and the work that they're doing, and also to some degree to help inspire others who are doing the same work at other places. I like that you're framing it as data journalism as opposed to, say, content marketing, because I feel like those are two separate types of, I guess, end goals. Like with content marketing, of course, you want to sort of market what the company does. But at least with this data journalism, it's less about Capital One, the product, and more about the ideals behind Capital One. Is, Is that kind of a good way to put it? Absolutely. That's actually a really important thing to dig into. So this data journalism work, to some degree, we're in this really great organization or part of design called Integrated Experiences. And our kind of whole mission in this giant bubble that we're in is to kind of find the interconnectivity, to continue to seed and unearth the humanity across all of Capital One's offerings and kind of all of Capital One's products and services. And so data journalism is very much at this moment, kind of this self-directed effort to unearth for just the good of other technologists, but also for the fun and surprise and enjoyment of consumers as they want to see what it is that we're working on here to unearth those stories. It is absolutely like so far away from content marketing. It's kind of just using the data visualization and kind of art and data science skills that we have to just seed these stories that are already in play that people might not even realize um, are affecting their day-to-day lives. That's fascinating. Is is data journalism something new? I guess when I think about the intersection of data and journalism, I'm thinking, you know, when people put graphs and charts inside Mm. of an article or something, is this something that started with Capital One, or is this a a fairly new kind of topic? So I would say that there are some amazing, you're absolutely thinking correctly and thinking of things like the New York Times and the Upshot um, and the work that they do there, or thinking of the work that Periscopic does out of Portland, Do Good With Data. We are lucky enough to have Kim Rees, um, my boss, who founded the data visualization practice here at Capital One, but she was also a co-founder of Periscopic, which also kind of tells you 
how important this practice of data visualization is to Capital One is that they said, Kim, like, we know that you're out there working in this organization that specifically aims to do good with data. They've done some wonderful work and said, like, come over and bring that same kind of energy to Capital One. And Kim's been working over the past couple of years to stand up this practice. And I think that we're now finally at a point where we're, you know, it's a mammoth organization of 45,000, if not 50,000 associates. And so you can imagine how difficult it is, and not difficult it is, but there's a learning curve, right? To basically finding out where all of the different arms of the company are, what everyone's working on, how their work intersects. And we're finally, I think, at a place where we can start to unearth those stories. And it, you're right in thinking that data journalism is both, there's import on the words and on the context, and on the annotation around a data visualization, as much as there is kind of an anchoring graphic and something that people can explore, whether that's, you know, displayed on a giant screen, which is a potential place for one of our near future visualizations to go, or whether that's on something that we produce via medium that people can jump in and explore themselves. We want the data journalism practice to kind of offer a myriad of media that really allow people to kind of be provoked. Our physical experience design arm operates in the same way. They recently developed a gallery in our San Francisco space called the Future of Data Privacy, of personal data. And it exists really to provoke people, to incite them, to think through, like, what does it actually mean to have data privacy? And the, the hope being that a PM or a data scientist or a business leader goes through and comes out the other end um, in some way rethinking what they've always thought about data privacy. And data journalism aims to do the same thing, no matter what topic it sets forth. That is fascinating. I am. I really want to learn <laughs> more about that because for I'm thinking just for myself, I love to write mm. and I'm a designer, but I also really like data. And so finding mm. something that is sort of the perfect Venn diagram intersection between those three sounds like what data journalism is. So I, I, I'll have to bend your ear a little bit more about that probably <laughs> after the interview. But um, awesome. what is a typical day like for you? You're doing this data journalism. Um, you said you're also a strategy lead on design, data experience design team. What's mm -hmm. a regular day like at Capital One? So a regular day, we've got, got a distributed team. So I'm based in San Francisco. We've got an engineer of mine sits in New York and a couple of other folks probably joining her soon in New York. We've got offices in Richmond and Northern Virginia. So we're as much focused on like the connectivity of the team as we are about kind of advancing projects. Any given project at the moment kind of has its own cadence. So a day for me could be starting out with joining a stand-up for a data product that I'm working on and then could break into some sort of team meeting, whether it be kind of our broader team of 20 plus people or it could just be a few people chatting about a project internally. I do not have as much heads down space at the moment as I wish that I had. I have to get savvy with my calendar in 2019. And then I'd say a lot of it's done kind of in, in brainstorming and whiteboarding sessions that we kind of plot out like what the next steps of our work are and kind of who I, I imagine our work is kind of a giant relay race because we have to work between so many different skill sets, right? We have to work between kind of the data science piece. Right now we're building 
as I mentioned, kind of this installation for this giant screen at our headquarters in Northern Virginia. And there's a whole tech stack of four wind players and Ubuntu systems and things that I are I'm still very behind on the learning curve of that I have to kind of understand from the more technically minded people on our team, kind of what all goes into making this visualization able to be displayed. And kind of once we go through all of those kind of team check-ins, then people might break apart and I might get a few hours, a couple hours of heads down time to actually play in Illustrator and Excel Post-it notes and Sharpies are never too far from me to kind of sketch out like what the next part of the story is or whatever it is that we're working on. So, yeah, depending on what it is that you're working on, do you have a specific process across those projects? DataViz is, I think, one of the hardest one of the hardest challenges about DataViz is that I need my machine as much as I need my pencil and paper, especially as I'm early concepting, because I need to be able to touch the data as much as I possibly can to kind of evaluate those stories. And if what I'm seeing is true and kind of dig into it, and I need to be able to do what we call exploratory data analysis. So the ability to kind of like rapidly produce a chart, which is kind of this John Tukey methodology of saying that you should be able to infer kind of some base statistics from just the visualization of a data set, as opposed to having to like look at each data point on a large Excel sheet. So it's as much as it's as important that I'm able to kind of do that work as I am able to then start to sketch out like the context in which this data graphic might live. And I think that's always been a little bit of a challenge is knowing when to go back to sketching and step away from the computer and then when to like re reinvigorate the sketch by going back to the data and confirming we're on a right trajectory. That just sounds to me fascinating because I love to <laughs> I love to do stuff with data like that, like going back and forth in that yeah. sort of way. Let's take it back. I have, you know, done my research in terms of your background and I know that you attended college at UC Davis in California. Go Aggies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, what was your time like there? It was great. I bit of an overachiever. I did um, English literature with a creative writing focus and did my kind of final thesis um, in a collection of poetry that talked about diasporic identity. So I started way back doing that. And I did a psychology kind of dual degree with a minor in African and African-American studies. And UC Davis was an incredible place to, to go to college. My professor's it's amazing. I went from a very tiny high school of like 200 and something kids, eighth through 12th grade. So you can imagine how close we were with our teachers to this behemoth university. And I thought it would probably be impersonal and I'd never be able to talk to my professors. And that just wasn't the case. Like there, I showed up for office hours. I was that person. I always raised my hand in a large auditorium. And through that, I was able to kind of cut through any sort of impersonality there was. It was a lovely time and so enriching. I was able to do a whole year abroad in London, which, you know, for the same cost as it would be to, to attend here locally and at UC Davis. So yeah, it was great. And what was it like once you, I mean, I'm thinking like back at your early career, what was it like when you first got started? Because I think what you're mentioning now with data experience design and data journalism, Mm. it feels like it's a far cry maybe from creative writing and psychology in college. What was was your early career like? 
So I'd say that um, the transition happened. So after undergrad, um, joined, I went to NYU for my master's in industrial organizational psychology, thinking I would follow that thread of psychology. And that type of psychology is really, I kind of distill it down. It's got a very long, multi-syllabic name, but all of it is to say that um, it's the study of humans and their organizations and organizations and how they organize for their humans. And there is, it kind of spans everything from training and personnel selection all the way through group dynamics, conflict and negotiation, and how I got to data, which is a heavy focus on research methods and statistics. Mm. And so I went through this psychology program and loved organizational development and had the opportunity to begin my career at HBO, which is incredible, and got to be a part of that team there. And I started doing a lot of trainings there, started doing a lot of just educational opportunities for adults. And a lot of that is kind of soft skills based training, right? How do you impart emotional intelligence to a group of adults? And HBO, as every organization kind of is centered these days, is kind of their their currency of communication is in a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> um, and so I started thinking about like, well, I know things about adult learning theory, and I know how I need to organize this information so that it lands as well as it possibly can for adults. And, and I wanted to edify that knowledge with some kind of designers who work in that sphere. So I started studying Tufti and Duarte and kind of really focused on information design and how could I clear the path design-wise so that this information would land. And kind of as I went down that rabbit hole, I realized that I was transitioning to more designer mindset than I was really as excited about kind of the content of what it was that I was teaching anymore. And at that time, I knew somebody who was spinning up a data visualization practice. And we talked a little bit about methodologies that I would use to approach soft skills. And we kind of started to have this exchange of what happened if I replaced that with data. And now all of a sudden, all of the pain and suffering I went through during my statistics and research methods courses all of a sudden made sense because I could use them as kind of the, the meat of the things that I was designing. And so that's how I got formally into data visualization um, about, oh my gosh, like eight years ago Wow! at this point. Yeah. And then from there went on to Capital One, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I spent five years at GFK, which is a global market research firm, which is an incredibly exciting place to be for a data visualization person, right? Because all of the meat there is data. So I got to see like large scale segmentations for ginormous companies and got to see how they whittled down all of their data and kind of all of their consumers into five key segments that they would kind of march an organization to serve. And then I got to see, you know, little tiny projects, you know, concept testing between does this packaging look great or does this or really important work in the UX sphere of, you know, does this back of the packaging explain to you how to use your medication or is there a better way that we could word this? So it was really exciting work for five years and loved being a part of that data viz team. Very nice. And speaking of UX, you were instrumental and helping put together the lineup for UX Week 2018. Yeah. For people that are listening, when Alana and I first met, I think this was back in, what, 2017, I believe? Yeah. Back, back when we had the old Slack community, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been a I big miss it daily. Uh, you, I mean, you've been a big supporter and patron of Revision Path, of course, which I really appreciate. And yeah. I was even able to kind of 
give some recommendations on some people who should, you know, speak at UX Week 2018. How did the event go? It was awesome. It was a dream to be asked by Jesse James Garrett and the organizing group there to be a part of something that is like such an institution, um, formally started by the Adaptive Path Group, um, which is kind of the service design arm of Capital One. It's since been reorged and kind of fully embedded in Capital One at this point. And yeah, it was the 16th year of UX Week this year. So it's a big year, big shoes to fill to program. And I was kind of asked to work on the service design track. And yeah, Sella was great. She led a wonderful workshop for us. Myself, Jamika, who I believe that you have an interview going with at some point, mm-hmm. Kat Veos from Slack, and uh, Dina Brown Fugel. We did an inclusive service design workshop, which was awesome. We had some great people from the New York City Governor's Office, New York City Service Design Practice you know, Workshop. And then Liz Jackson, who is this incredible designer who talked to us on the main stage as well about designing with disability and did some work there. But my kind of crowning excitement of the year was certainly having Hannah Beekler as keynote of UX Week, who is now, as of last week, the first African-American full stop who has ever been nominated for a production design Oscar for her work on Black Panther. So it was quite a week. Wow. So Hannah Beekler is like on my my short list of folks I would love to have on the show. Yeah. I just want to put that out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I read part of the the talk that you had, had done with her. I think it was it was transcribed. I read part yeah. of part of that. Yeah, we got really lucky in that she also was available to have an interview before she came in and talked to all of us. And it was really important or it was really exciting for me. So having already kind of laid the groundwork of doing this, you know, African and African-American studies and having kind of studied diasporic identity development and what that means. Being a person who is half black and half white, I've kind of always wrestled with who am I and what is my cultural identity? And then also having the tie that binds in that Hannah lives in New Orleans and my dad's family is from New Orleans and New Mm. Iberia, Louisiana, and kind of what does that kind of feeling of like, you know, my dad lived in New Iberia till he was 18 and then moved with my grandmother to San Jose, California. And so having these like two very culturally different experiences of blackness in the U.S. and seeing kind of how he over time has talked about that. Hannah and I got to get into all of that together, which was really exciting. She too grew up in Ohio and then moved to Louisiana. So also shares that experience. It was just really exciting. And she's incredibly open. And for me, the idea that like a designer would have to create, like this is like firmly in the realm of Afrofuturism, right? Of like choosing to live in a future that has never been architected before, choosing to be the architect of that future. Like there's such a weight with making sure that you get that right and correct. But there's also this, like, for me, at least, there's somewhat of this fear of like, anything is possible. And that's not something I've ever really let myself believe before. Mm. And so it was incredibly exciting to hear her talk about that. And then to, uh, this is my last fangirl moment, to even just think (laughs) about there, there were so many interviews that kind of glossed over the fact that she ran a department of 400 people with a budget with embarrassing amount of zeros behind it, right? Like that is CEO type behavior. And how many designers get the opportunity to lead at that level and to execute to the 
to the degree that Black Panther was executed was just so inspiring to me. Wow. Yeah, I I would love to to have a chance to talk with her about it, it's so funny. So like of course we did an episode on like the design of Black Panther. This was uh I loved that year. episode. Yeah. yeah, like back in back in February of last year I think so uh, we did that. And then someone who I interviewed fairly recently, Courtney Pinter, who is a uh designer in Zurich, Switzerland. She designs for this company called Givadon and they design scents and flowers and stuff like that from what i remember from what she said from our conversation i believe she said that her half sister's godmother is ruth carter wow or something something to that effect like it was something like super close and then now you're mentioning i'm like i mean ruth is out there doing (laughs) ruth is out there doing the damn thing too she is also nominated like i mean ruth uh bow down and like she's the work that she's done is amazing i think there was a really great article that came out recently i think it was in the times and it talked about the powerful women that ryan put in place to lead the departments on this film yeah and it was incredibly inspiring in general like I've been mesmerized the way that people that work with him talk about working with him. And it has been so inspiring the way in which he hires somebody and then says, like, you be you. The -hmm. thing that I hired you for is to be you and do that authentically. That is how we all win. And yeah, so yay to Ruth, yay to Hannah. Um, What an inspiring film and year it has been. Yeah. And I mean, for people that are listening, I mean, they might be familiar with Hannah, I think, certainly from UX Week and, of course, through Black Panther and with Ruth Carter as well. But, like, Ruth Carter has been in the game for a long time. Like, yes. before Black Panther, I mean, we're talking Malcolm X, we're talking yep. Amistad, Selma. I know she did a lot of Spikes movies, like Chirac. Mm-hmm. Like, some of the recent ones, like Chirac, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, I think maybe Old Boy, I think she did mm-hmm. that one. But she's been in the game for a long time doing Ugh. costumes. I mean, I think she started with School Days, which wow. was filmed mostly at my alma mater at Morehouse. So, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So a lot of years in the game. So definitely, certainly, absolutely very well deserved. And let's just say, like, the last couple of years, I have had, I mean, like, I've watched the Oscars maybe with Wayne interest. Mm-hmm. And this year, you better believe <laughs> my my Oscars party is going to be lit. Like, I'm so excited <laughs> to be front row and cheering on these, like, amazing, amazing women. Yeah. Like, actually, it brought excitement and vigor back to the Oscars for me. Nice. So outside of this, what are you most excited about at the moment? Is there, like, a particular kind of subject matter or field that you're really into right now? Yeah. So over the last year, probably about springtime of last year, our former head of the Center for Machine Learning came to my boss. So Kim, who I mentioned earlier of Periscopic, now of Capital One, leading our data visualization or data experience design team. They were really close business partners and really close just partners in general and working. And he wanted to start a practice or kind of an initiative around fairness in AI and realized that 
he had engineers who were going to participate in this practice or kind of this, these initial steps and scoping, but that we didn't have a human-centered design voice in the room. And so he asked our team of designers to participate. And Kim, kind of knowing how important diversity and inclusion is to me, kind of knowing how important working for my community is for me, invited me to participate. And so what began as kind of this initial meeting saying, like, I don't know how we're going to approach this, but we are going to work on it, grew into kind of co-founding the initiative of Fairness in AI for our design practice at Capital One. And so I've kind of morphed from that since, and I'm thinking about how I can use like my design skills as a data visualization designer to unpack that. But over the past year, I have spoken, I've been to conferences, I've received knowledge, I've looked at way more matrix algebra than I thought that I would. And I also had the opportunity to co-program Capital One's first ever internal, we call it a workshop, but it's really an internal conference of like 200 plus people of fairness and AI at Capital One, which is really exciting. Why is fairness and AI important? It's incredibly important because we're seeing news, I mean, news results daily of companies and algorithms that unintentionally or intentionally are predatory on underserved and underprivileged communities. And the idea for me that that would perpetuate is egregious, especially because in meeting kind of the engineers that I've worked with and in other designers, like we're almost, or at least maybe it's self-selecting that I've met these people, that they're kind of governed by this credo to do no harm. And I think that in this kind of era of big data, the potential that we would be able to kind of just write an algorithm and train it on a set of data and produce it into the world is just so easily at our fingertips. But we have to kind of start to think about the process and think kind of eight steps ahead of ourselves to think like, well, what are the ramifications of the data that is missing or that is absent from my training set that will produce an algorithm that might affect people disproportionately or set them at an advantage. I think that's obviously very incredibly important in the financial sector. It's incredibly important across all sectors, from recruiting to policing in every which way. And so it's just been so important to me to understand one, kind of to close that technical understanding gap. I think as a designer, I always have had this imposter syndrome of, you know, especially working with like the PhD level researchers that I did at GFK, you know, how much do I know about research? How much can I speak their language so that they'll invite me into the design process more and, and help me and I can help them and we can produce the best thing for our customers. The same is true now working with machine learning engineers and data scientists. How can I demonstrate that I have a grasp and an understanding of what how they work and what they work on such that they will invite me into their process and then I can be that human-centered design voice of reason throughout. Let's get to that a little more because perhaps when people think of AI, they think, you know, it's very technical. There's a lot of code. You need to have a very sort of high understanding of the subject. And I know that we mostly have designers that listen to the show and this might be something this might be a concept that turns them off because they don't necessarily have a technical background. Mm. How can designers get involved with understanding AI and entering that space? So there are um, amazing resources out there for you. 
I don't even care if it's like a five minute YouTube that just explains like, what is machine learning? Or I found some machine learning flashcards that I've printed out from the internet to help kind of collapse my time to productivity of understanding it. Walking into rooms, if you're at a conference, I've been to a couple of conferences where like, there's like the design track and then there might be a tech track and then there might be a math track. And I've like forced myself to go to the math sessions and realize like there's more conversation happening in those math sessions that I realized that there was. And just kind of like building an awareness by proximity to the content, I think has been really helpful. And then just like, there's some few, there's just a couple of basic con of lessons in terms of like what a model is set out to do, like what a neural network is. And just having those baseline definitions or understandings will help in the long run in terms of understanding how to design for that tech. And what I would also say is this community of practitioners working, especially in the fairness space, but in machine learning in general, they're incredibly willing and open to answer any questions. But I think the worst thing that you can do is kind of not ask a question and assume because that assumption or that assumptive kind of disposition, I think, turns people off. But if you walk in and you just say like, hey, can you explain a neural network to me? Or can you explain how AlphaGo was able to do what it did? Then you get people like leaning forward and like directly engaged with you that will help you understand. Nice. No, I think that's good to know, uh, certainly for people that are looking to not just get into this field, but maybe just design or tech in general, like don't go in with any assumptions, go in open and willing to learn. Absolutely. And they're excited to have the design support. So at least kind of in my most recent experience, there is this push to figure out AI and there's this this kind of giant store of data that makes that possible. But then that also means that people are working kind of heads down under the constraints of like whatever business metric it is that they need to maximize or optimize for. And so the minute that a designer walks into the room and kind of helps like unmask or kind of unnet um, the context in which this algorithm might live or the context in which this business product might live, I see everybody relax quite a bit. So there's something for designers to also provide and, and space to kind of think about the what ifs and the whys um, that actually I see everybody excited about. So you also have something to offer as a designer, which is great. <laughs> You're no, not just taking. Yeah, no, that's really good to know. I would be so torn going to a conference that had a math track I know. A design trick and a data track. Like my, my degree is in math. I would be oh, wow. completely torn between that sort of stuff. Have you heard of this conference called Black and AI? Yes. And I actually very, very, very luckily got to meet Timnit earlier this week, introduced by a mutual friend in the Google AI practice. But yeah, Black and AI um, does a wonderful workshop at NIPS, which is kind of the yearly program that's, or pardon me, the yearly conference that's run. There's also a fairness, accountability, and transparency conference that's actually coming up this week, I believe in Atlanta. They're one, an awesome group to belong to in general. There's a Google group and tons of resources, tons of just opportunities are surfaced through that group, but then also their participation yearly at NIFS is, is great. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. I know they've done the event now for two years. It was in mm-hmm. Long Beach the first year. It was in Montreal last year. And I, they haven't announced anything yet for 2019. The year's still young. So I'll put a link so people can check that out. Awesome. I'd also recommend people check out 
One of the organizers was also on a panel at AI Now, which just happened recently. And that is a phenomenal, it was about two or three hours long kind of symposium, NYU, I believe, in New York, and very much recommend that people watch that. Kind of all of the people that I follow and like to hear from are definitely in that space. Kate Crawford and Timnit was there and Virginia Eubanks and more. And then there is also Data for Black Lives, which is a conference Mm. that just happened at MIT. And all of those videos, I know it's so hard in our daily lives to like pull aside and watch a YouTube video of a conference, but you get so much from it. So highly recommend looking at both of those recordings. And then hopefully we can all meet up at the next sessions next year. Yeah, I had my eye for on the Data for Black Lives live stream just to kind of check it out. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I have to say there's some really, uh, and I have to give it up to to Cambridge for this because it's probably the last city I would think that this kind of stuff mm. would go on. To be quite honest with you, but like between Data for Black Lives and the Black and Design Conference, mm-hmm. there's something happening in Cambridge there where they are really kind of having some next level conversations about how black people are involved in the tech and design spaces and not just in terms of design, not necessarily product design, but like urban designing, Mm -hmm. service design, things of that nature. I know black and design 2019 is going to be coming up later on this year. And I'm really excited. uh, I will see you all there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I, I I still have chills thinking about, was it 2017? I in general had never been to a conference that looked the way it did, like looking out into the audience, which also let me tell you, like allies and accomplices, you are invited, you are welcome. And what a beautifully inclusive, lovely venue and space that was. And Mm -hmm. then also just to attend a conference where there was like your whole heart and your mind were both served up with delight, right? Like we got to do, we had to hear from Leslie Salmon Jones, who was a former Alvin Ailey dancer, started Afroflow yoga. She led us through some dance and through some yoga together. And then we would hear from, was it Roger Bonaire, a guard who did spoken word. And then we heard from like Duray McKesson. There was this wonderful (laughs) tapestry of folks that like, By the end of the weekend, you couldn't not be moved. And this is, it was art that affects all of us. And so very much, yeah, I have allies and accomplices who afterwards said like, will we be welcome? And I said, I will buy you your ticket for next time. (laughs) Like, it is important that we all go. Yeah. And the tickets are cheap. Gotta say right? that. <laughs> right? Most most of these conferences you go to where the, the tickets are like five hundred dollars and up, I think Oof. Black and Design was less than a hundred. It yes. was it was very affordable. Very yes. affordable. Yes. And they take care of you. Like I was so impressed by the food, by just the atmosphere in general. It was, yeah, yeah, you're right though. Something special is happening in that Cambridge area. I'm a little jealous to live so far away from it, but I'll come visit. Yeah. Shout out to the, the uh, African-American student union there at the uh, Harvard graduate school of design, because they're really Mm -hmm. doing, I mean, for the black and design conference, certainly they're doing something and even what's going on with the uh, data for black lives Mm. event. It's uh, yeah. There's really some great conversations going on in those two events that hopefully people get a chance to kind of learn more about. Yeah. Where do you see AI going into the future? I think unchecked. I think that unfortunately the boundaries are limitless. One of the things I've been talking about in the past year is that humans are not evolving or not co-evolving with tech at tech speeds. And so one of the things that I would hope or kind of encourage organizations to do 
is have a growth strategy that is mindful around AI. Just because we can entrench a person's life, entrench people's lives with AI and kind of like seamlessly integrate them into this like Westworld-like experience, we don't have to. And we can grow slowly and we can grow mindfully. And I think that we are more entrenched already than we realize that we are. So from banking, from the way that we order a car via Lyft or Uber, the way that we look at our email, what's foregrounded, what's below the line, kind of what's deemed unimportant, all of that is AI at work. Smart speakers um, too. Smart speakers too. Yeah. Absolutely. The way that we kind of get set up with doctor's appointments or even the treatments that they provide us or are recommended to us, all of that is embedded within AI. My hope is that companies now are kind of looking at each other and asking each other to be to behave responsibly in this space. And my hope is that the consumer gets even savvier about knowing what to demand and what to expect of the technology that's provided to them. I think that any sort of laziness will just continue to allow technology to prey upon us if we say like, oh, I'm sure somebody else has thought of that. Because most times either somebody else has not thought of that or there's not kind of a fever pitch or a quorum of people that are able to kind of get the brakes to stop before a tech is implemented. The future of AI could either be incredibly bleak or it could be incredibly exciting. I'm kind of split right now in deciding how jaded I'm going to be about the future. (laughs) (laughs) Feels like we're talking like, I want to say it feels like we're talking in a science fiction movie, but this is reality right now. Right? Yeah, I think I think one thing that is inspiring, especially kind of just going back to Hannah Beekler, right, is that is kind of applying this notion of Afrofuturism to AI and the idea that, you know, the training data that algorithms are being trained on, especially let's take, for instance, Amazon Prime, when it originally launched its same day feature, it was quickly noted, I think this piece was produced in Bloomberg that kind of reported on the tech that, you know, you could map those initial same-day delivery offerings with redlining maps. Mm. And I don't believe that that team went out and said, let's reproduce redlining in the way that we (laughs) offer our same-day delivery service. Like, I'm going to hope and believe optimistically that that didn't happen. But what that tells you is that zip code is an incredibly powerful, historical, confounding variable. Yes. And what that also tells me then is that there's power in this idea of Afrofuturism and this idea of building a future that has never before been imagined and then building the technology to meet that future. Because especially in this country, so many of those confounding variables exist and can creep in, whether it's not, you know, whether it's a a group of images that an algorithm can be trained on and just kind of what's in those images, what's available. Is it more suburban landscapes or are there some urban landscapes? And, And what are the shades of faces that are in that collection of training data, you know, to zip codes, to continue on down the line. My hope is that we get a little bit more futurism. We get a little bit more unbridled creative dreaming about what's possible, about what begets equity and justice and joy for all. And then we work backwards from there because I think starting where we are today is just going to continue to replicate what has already existed, which for us is just a long storied hundreds of years history mm-hmm. of not so wonderful treatment to yeah. say the least. When you look back at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? 
I wish I would have known, I think, that every decision that I make is not so monumental. I think that I definitely was kind of shrouded in this fear to make sure that I get things right. I think that goes with my, I'm just incredibly risk averse. I think I had one manager one time tell me that like, you know, you had a strong year. Next year, let's exercise 10% less caution. I had another friend who once told me, or I think the story about somebody else said like, it's okay to take up space. And that I think is something that I just have not so freely done is taken up space and exercise less caution. So my hope would be in the future that I do more of that. And retroactively, I wish that I had done that a bit more and made a bit more waves and spoken up for what I knew was true or correct kind of along the way, instead of just kind of acquiescing or, or kind of like reframing the problem statement such that I would be more comfortable as opposed to actually believing in the problem statement and, and working to correct what, what was happening, whether that be at like changing jobs or whether that be on a project level or kind of working directly with a client and knowing, knowing something that was better for them in the long run. You know, I could apply that at any degree, at any scope. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? Like you're speaking at a conference coming up soon, right? Yeah, so I'll be at Convey UX in March. And I, in the meantime, continuing to build out this data journalism practice and hire up for a team. We're building out um, a visualization for an installation at the headquarters of our company in Northern Virginia, which is exciting. I've never, as I kind of mentioned earlier, like never built a data visualization for a screen of this caliber. Mm -hmm. And so some part of the learning curve is, is understanding, like, how do you build visualizations for streaming data? That has been something that we've not yet cracked, and I'm really excited to crack that um, just in my own nerdery. And then continuing to just think about, like, how can I use this data visualization or data journalism practice to kind of use my craft of data viz in that fairness space? How can I build things that continue to unearth bias or continue to show how we have worked to not let bias creep into our algorithms, to continue to use data journalism to think about bold, beautiful, equitable futures that have not yet existed in current data or, you know, what might possibly be. That's what's next for me. So it's decidedly the most artistic and the most like open sky that I've ever worked, which is exciting. It is also terrifying because I don't fashion myself to be an artist, but I'm also really excited for the challenge and really excited for the space that I'm lucky enough to have had Capital One create for me to do this work. Like when I tell people the work that I do, and then I tell them that I work at a bank, <laughs> they're so confused. Like you do what now? Like, where do you work? Like, are you get paid to do that? Yeah, it's great. Nice. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So I am at Alana Washington on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I'm a happy mentor, um, happily would love to coach anybody that ever need has questions or what have you. I also am a very excited collaborator. So also reach out to me there if you have something that you want to noodle on design-wise together, time permitting. I have a portfolio site that is in desperate need of rehabilitation, but I've just not had time in the last couple of years to do it at alanajwashington.com, but you can find me there as well. Sounds good. Well, Alana Washington, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And I have to say, you know, this is coming at the end of a month of great interviews mm. with Black women at Capital One, and you were the one that helped make all of this possible. So I want to thank you, of course, for that, the great 
voices we've heard from this month from Jamika, from Belinda, from our niece, and then of course from you as well. I think even just with everything you're talking about, whether it's the data experience design, the data journalism, or even you know the fairness of AI, I really love how you're using sort of this combination of design and data to really make a better future for all of us. Mm. And I mean, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this. Like, what are the possibilities that we need to know about because of this sort of research and information? So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been an honor to bring some of our wonderful designers, my friends, my mentors, my family here at Capital One to the podcast for the last month. And thank you for the opportunity that you provide all of us to lift all of us up. I really appreciate it. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Alana Washington and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Alana and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries. And it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. If you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.